Good. Well, Delisha, thank you very much indeed for that, uh, that very clear reading. I'm glad that the microphone was adjusted to the appropriate height and we could hear every word. So thank you very much for that. And just one notice before I pray, and that is that uh, next Saturday we will be showing the film Luther in our home. And uh, we do look forward to welcoming as many of you as, who are able to come to watch that film with us. I really enjoyed Alice's little Reformation spotlight. And uh, I think this is a great time for us to just remind ourselves what God did uh, through Luther and through others 500 years ago. So please join us next Saturday evening. Supper will be served. And uh, we look forward to having you in our home for that. But for now, won't you bow with me and uh, let's pray and ask for God's help. Almighty God, we thank you and praise you this morning that you put your word back into the hands of the people through the reformers. And we celebrate that uh, through the next several weeks. We pray that we would not despise that privilege. Help us to make the best possible use of it this morning. Please give clarity to speaker and to hearer alike. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do please keep James chapter 2 open in front of you. I think it's page 860 in the Bible on the table. It will make more sense to you if you're looking at the text. Um, Extreme Makeover is a reality TV programme that promised a lady called Denise Williams cosmetic surgery. Um, They told Denise that the surgery would transform her life and her destiny. But uh, just before the surgery, one of the doctors told the producers of Extreme Makeover that Denise's recovery time would, would actually be rather longer than they expected. So she was immediately dropped from the series and sent back home to Texas. Uh, Poor Denise was absolutely devastated. She said, how can I go back home as ugly as I left? I was supposed to go home pretty. Today, uh, Denise is so hurt and humiliated that she refuses to leave her house And when she does her weekly shopping, she goes to the store at midnight. But the damage is actually much worse than that, because in preparing for the show, the producers coached Denise's family not to accept her physical flaws. In fact, they persuaded her family to express their negative opinions about Denise's appearance on taped interviews and Denise saw the tapes. Afterwards, her sister Kelly was so ashamed by what she had said that she ended her life with an overdose of pills and alcohol and cocaine. Now, that is a true story and, of course, it is desperately sad. But I start with it because it illustrates the deadly consequences of a lie that is everywhere today. The lie that I'm talking about is this. 
that we will be more loved when we make ourselves more attractive. TV, social media, the internet have persuaded millions of people that this is true, that we will be more loved when we make ourselves more attractive. But of course it isn't true. And the problem is that if we believe it, and millions do, we will be crippled by anxiety and fear. We will say to ourselves, you know, I don't feel especially loved at the moment. That means I can't be attractive enough. So I've got to work a great deal harder to make myself more attractive, not only physically, but also intellectually and socially. Then I will be loved. Now I do hope that you can see how destructive that is. You see, if I believe that, then how can I ever know whether I've made myself sufficiently attractive to be worth loving? Well, that is everywhere today. And I hope by now you're thinking, well, what on earth has it got to do with the Reformation? Well, the greatest of the reformers, Martin Luther, put it like this, quote, Sinners are attractive because they are loved. They are not loved because they are attractive. Now, friends, that is the sparkling good news of the Reformation. The good news of the Reformation sets us free from the crippling anxiety and fear that we haven't actually done enough to be worth loving. The Reformation tells us that whoever we are, whatever we've done, we actually couldn't be more loved than we already are this morning. How does that work? How can we be sure? Well, that's what we're going to be thinking about together on the next four Sunday mornings and the next four Wednesday evenings. And can I urge you, please, to come to both? Uh, The series on Wednesday evenings is a a DVD-based course with a work booklet. If I can find it, I'll show it to you. Everybody who comes on the course gets one of these. And it is excellent material. It is quite the most brilliant DVD course I've seen for some time. And in order to get the full benefit, in order to understand what the Reformation means for you personally today, you do need to come to both. So each week, we're going to be looking at one of the four ideas that are right at the heart of the Reformation. 500 years ago, these ideas changed the world. And they've been changing lives ever since. Perhaps the greatest of these ideas is that salvation is by faith alone. And so it's no surprise that this week we're thinking about faith. And this morning, our teacher is the Apostle James. Now, uh, the theme, uh, James, as you probably know, was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. And the theme of his marvellous little letter right at the end of the New Testament 
is spiritual reality. And in our passage this morning, James is saying to Christians, I want to show you how you can know that your faith is real and that you really are friends with God. And the way that James does this is by pointing out that there are two kinds of faith. There's one kind of faith that is dead and useless and he gives us two examples of that. But there's also another kind of faith that is real and leads to heaven. And using two of the Bible's greatest heroes, James shows us how we can know whether this is the kind of faith that you and I have or not. Now, if you look inside the bulletin that you were given when you arrived at church this morning, you'll find that uh, there there is an outline of where we're going in the next few minutes. So let's get straight down to business and notice please, firstly, James says that dead faith is all mouth and no action. Dead faith is all mouth and no action. Verses 14 to 17. Now the illustration that James uses here concerns practical help uh, from one Christian to another. So look with me at verse 15. James says, Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, Go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Now to understand the point that James is making, we first need to notice two things that James is not saying. First, James is not saying that this pious brother is so self-absorbed that he's blind to the condition of his unfortunate friend. Um, There are plenty of people who are like that. Uh, They can be sitting next to somebody in church on Sunday morning who is in obvious distress and do nothing whatever to help them. But that isn't the problem that James is thinking of here. The need is obvious and the pious brother can see it. Second, James is not saying that the pious brother isn't genuinely concerned. His words in verse 16 are sincere. He he really does want to see an improvement in the other man's circumstances. His opening remark is a sincere prayer. It's a word of blessing, which in the original goes like this. Go in the peace of God. And what he's actually saying is, let us trust in the Lord to meet all your needs. Now you might say, well, what on earth can be wrong with that? Sounds like tremendous faith in God's provision. And of course there have been some examples of this kind of faith in history. Terrific examples. Uh, So for example in the 19th century, uh, George Muller, 
established a number of orphanages in Bristol, which uh, in the course of his life cared for and educated around 30,000 orphans. Uh, George Muller insisted that his ministry should be entirely supported through prayer. He trusted God for absolutely everything. He never once asked anybody for financial assistance and his ministry was never in debt. By the time he died in 1898, his organisation had received and distributed the equivalent today of over 3.6 billion rand, all given in support of the work. The other great example, of course, of this kind of faith uh, was the famous Hudson Taylor, and we thought of him before. He founded the China Inland Mission, also in the 19th century. He spent more than 50 years in China. He brought 800 missionaries into the country. He founded 125 Christian schools. And by the time that he had died, 18,000 Chinese people had come to faith in Christ. In fact, his work established the gospel in China on such a firm foundation that it could survive all the years of communist persecution. In fact, during those years, instead of being crushed, the gospel spread so that there are more Christians in China today than any other country in the world. And once again, Hudson Taylor lived entirely by faith. He never asked for financial support, but he was never in debt. Now, they're great stories, but you see, George Muller and Hudson Taylor are the exception rather than the rule. Very occasionally, God does give men and women a special dispensation to live like that for a particular purpose, but that is not the general rule. Now, the New Testament principle is that what we cannot do, God does, but what we can do, we must do. Now, I'd like to give you an illustration of that, so please won't you keep a finger in James and turn to the Gospel of Mark on page 709. The Gospel of Mark, chapter 5, page 709. Uh, We're going to be picking it up at verse 41. Now, while you're turning there, let me tell you the context. Uh, You know the story well, many of you, I think. A man called Jairus has come to Jesus and begged him to come and heal his daughter who's dying. But before they reach the house, uh, a messenger comes with the tragic news that the little girl is already dead. But Jesus isn't put off. He tells the man not to be afraid, simply to trust him. And uh, Jesus goes up to the dead girl's bedroom, and now verse 41. Jesus took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. 
He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Now notice, will you, that Jesus does for the little girl what nobody else could possibly do. He brings a dead girl back to life. But then, very interestingly, he tells her parents to do what comes naturally to every mother and father, to go into the kitchen and prepare the girl a good meal. Now that is the New Testament principle. That is the point in James chapter 2. James knows that the people that he's talking to may not be rich, but they certainly have enough food and clothing to care for those in need around them. And the point that he's making is for them to ignore that responsibility and turn it back onto God isn't faith, it is sheer presumption. That kind of faith is dead. It's all mouth and it is no action. But James has more to say about this, so come back to James with me now, because secondly, he says that dead faith is all mind and no action. All mind and no action. Verses 18 and 19. Now in verse 18, uh, James strikes up a conversation with an imaginary third party. The, the letter writers of the New Testament love to do this. They have a kind of an imaginary conversation in order to make a point. And he says this, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. And you see, what James is doing is picking up on an idea that is still very much with us today, that there are two types of Christian. There's kind of the faith Christian and there is the deeds Christian. As if faith and deeds were two equally plausible ways of getting to heaven. Uh, perhaps this is what the uh, author Iris Murdoch was thinking when she said this, I think I'm a Christian, but I don't believe in God, I don't believe in the resurrection, I don't believe that Christ was a divine figure, I don't believe in the afterlife or all the paraphernalia of Christianity. Now, I don't know what in the wide world made Iris Murdoch think she was a Christian, but quite clearly it had nothing to do with faith. She appears to have believed in anything at all. And perhaps like so many people today, all round uh, the churches of Cape Town, um, she thought there were several categories of Christian. Now, friends, that is nonsense. The New Testament insists that before I can call myself a Christian, there are certain non-negotiables that I must believe. But having said that, belief shouldn't stop in the mind. And that's why James throws down the gauntlet in verse 18b. Can you see the second half of verse 18? Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You see, 
If I ask you to show me your faith, well, you can't, because it's impossible. Faith is invisible, isn't it? The only thing you can do is to show me the actions in your life that point to your faith. And James says, if you can't do that, you're not a Christian. To get his message across, uh, James chooses, I think, a very striking illustration that probably none of us would ever think of. He turns to the demons. And in verse 19, can we all see verse 19 in our Bibles? In verse 19, he says that although the demons are in league with Satan, even they have at least two positive things going for them. The first is that they have sound doctrine. They believe there is one God. It's very interesting, actually. The the wording in the original of verse 19 is a little ambiguous, but it could equally well be translated... God is one. And for those of you who've been studying your Old Testament, you'll know that that's an extract from the prayer that every faithful Jew would say every morning before breakfast. So it seems, doesn't it, that the the demons have an accurate doctrine of God. And again, this is something that we find in the Gospels. Uh, Please won't you turn to Mark chapter 1 on page 706. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, page 706 of the Supplied Bible, verse 21. Mark writes, They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. People were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. (coughs) Just then, a man in their synagogue, who was possessed by an evil spirit, cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, friends, just think about that. Think about it. It takes the disciples another seven chapters in the Gospel of Mark before they even begin to twig who Jesus actually is. But the demons already know in chapter 1. These demons are so well taught, they would pass all the doctrine exams at George Whitfield College, they would get distinctions in their doctrine assignments. We'll come back to James chapter 2 and verse 19. Because the second thing you see that the demons have got going for them is that such is their respect for the power and the greatness of God that when they think about it, they shudder. Now that's more than can be said for the average churchgoer in Cape Town today, isn't it? You know, I think as soon as the preacher stands up and talks about the power and the greatness of God, people aren't shuddering, they're yawning. But the demons shudder. And yet, for all their knowledge about God, they are still demons. You see, their knowledge hasn't done them any good. 
So the rather disturbing point that James is making in his letter is that it is perfectly possible for a person to say that they believe all the right things and yet still end up with the demons in hell. And that's because dead faith is all mind and no action. So those are two examples of dead faith that doesn't do anybody any good, faith that is useless. What does saving faith look like? Well, come back to James. Because saving faith is proved by costly sacrifice. Saving faith is proved by costly sacrifice. Verses 20 to 24. Now, in this section, uh, James uses Abraham as an example of saving faith. And uh, in order to make his point, he, uh, he, he, he shows us Abraham's willingness to make the ultimate sacrifice <coughs> when God called upon him to do it. But before we can see how Abraham's example applies to us, we first need to be aware of one of the difficulties that people have had in understanding what James is saying at this point in his letter. You see, James's letter has come in for some pretty heavy criticism over the years. Uh, even the reformer Martin Luther described it as an epistle of straw. He clearly didn't think much of it. And this little paragraph has been right at the very centre of all the controversy. And that is, you see, because Luther and others have studied the writings of the Apostle Paul. And in particular, what Paul has to say in Romans chapter 3 and verse 28. You don't need to look at it, just make a note of the verse. Romans 3 verse 28. Because in that verse, you see, Paul says, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works, apart from observing the law. So that's pretty clear, isn't it? According to Paul, salvation is by faith. But then you see, they look at what James has to say in James chapter 2, verse 24, where James says, you see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. And they say, oh no, James is contradicting Paul. Just goes to show you can't trust the Bible. Well, let me give you three reasons why that is not true. First, in Acts chapter 15, we find the account of the first major council or synod of the early church, which met to discuss precisely this issue. Both James and Paul were present on that occasion, and there is no record of any disagreement between them. Quite the reverse, actually. At that council, they both agreed, along with all the other apostles, that salvation is by faith alone. That's the first piece of evidence. The second piece of evidence 
comes from examining what James is really saying in verse 21 and following. Can you see in verse 21, James says, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. Now, I want to focus your attention on that little phrase, was made complete. You see, the Bible tells us, doesn't it, that faith is a gift from God. So someone might say, well, is James saying perhaps that this God-given gift is somehow incomplete until we add our deeds to it? Well, obviously he's not saying that. But to help us understand what he does mean, we need to take our third cross-reference this morning. Come with me, please, to 1 John chapter 4 on page 870. The first letter of John, right at the end of the Bible, before the book of Revelation. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 12, just before the book of Revelation. Take your time but do try and put your nose on it. John says in verse 12, No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now, when John says that God's love is made complete in us, what he means is that the love of God reaches its intended goal when we respond to his love by loving one another. You follow the argument. Now, if we apply that understanding to the same phrase back in James... What we're being told is that Abraham's faith reached its intended goal when he did what God was asking him to do. In other words, his faith did what it was supposed to do. The third piece of evidence is this word justify, which can actually have two different meanings in everyday speech according to context. It can either mean to make someone right or it can mean to prove something right or prove someone right. So uh, I could be chatting to my brother James after the sermon over coffee and uh, in the course of our conversation he might say to me, Simon, justify your second point in the sermon. Now, when he says that, obviously he doesn't mean make that point true. Because I cannot possibly make something true that isn't true, can I? I mean, that's, that's illogical. Now, what James would be meaning is prove it to be true. And we can find plenty of examples in the Bible of both these uses of the word justify in Scripture. 
So when the Apostle Paul says that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law, what he means is that when we trust in Christ, God declares us to be in a right relationship with himself. That is what Paul means when he says we are justified by faith. But when James says in chapter 2 verse 24 that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone, he's saying that what he does proves his faith to be true. And so in our passage, because Abraham was willing to make a very costly sacrifice, Abraham proved his faith was the real thing. And because of what he did, verse 23, proving by his actions that his faith was the real deal, Abraham was called God's friend. Well, there's a lot to take in there, but you see, the point is, what James is actually asking of all of us this morning is what sacrifices are we willing to make to prove that our faith is real? Are we willing to sacrifice time with the family or time in the library in order to attend a weekly Bible study where we can grow, where we can grow in our knowledge and understanding of God and of his purposes and at the same time encourage our brothers and sisters? Are we willing to risk our reputation at work uh, or with friends by sharing the gospel? Maybe putting it more positively, I think James is challenging each one of us individually to be asking ourselves this question. What can I do with the gifts that God has given me and the type of person that I am in order to bring most glory to God for the rest of my life? That's the question that James wants us to be asking ourselves this morning. Where does the motivation for this sacrifice come from? Well, it comes from the joy and the delight of knowing what it means to be God's friend. Of knowing that God loves me. You see, if you know that God has declared that you are his friend you will know that this side of glory, there is no greater comfort in life. So you're not going to have to work up the strength to please God. You will naturally want to do it. And all you need is a little bit of gentle guidance and direction from James uh, to show you how. I'd like to read you a (coughs) short extract from a sermon that was preached on this passage. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, by Jonathan Edwards. Uh, The sermon was preached in 1752. And I think he makes the point very well indeed. He says this, quote, True faith wants friendship with God. True faith 
longs for God. False faith can see the holiness of God, can see the wisdom of God, can see the greatness and the power of God, can even see something of the love of God. But the one thing that false faith can never see is the loveliness of God. And true faith wants to please God just because of who he is. End quote. Well, lastly, let's move on and consider the other example which uh, James gives of saving faith, which is that saving faith is proved by costly service. Costly sacrifice, we've just seen. Costly service. Verses 25 and 26. Verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? Now, we're, of course, quite familiar with the story, aren't we? But commentators have actually been rather puzzled for years by James's choice of Rahab for his final example. Um, there are so many apparently more impressive candidates from the Old Testament that he might have chosen. Uh, why not choose Joseph, who remained faithful for all of those years in an Egyptian jail and uh, who rescued both his family, uh, and all the Egyptians from the famine. Uh, or what about Queen Esther? You know, she risked her neck, didn't she, to save all Israel from total genocide. So why did he choose Rahab? Well, I think the answer is that James chooses Rahab because she was the kind of outsider that Jesus spent so much of his time with she wasn't an Israelite. She was a Canaanite, as you know. So she was outside the chosen people of God. She was an outsider. She was also a prostitute. And when you put those two things together, you see, Rahab had no grounds whatsoever for expecting to receive mercy from God. And yet, as we saw in our series... When she heard what God had done for Israel, rescuing them from Egypt, parting the waters of the Red Sea, sustaining his people in the wilderness for 40 years, Rahab believed in God. And you see, Rahab isn't remembered for her faith alone. She's remembered because her faith motivated her to take a big personal risk to help God's people. And because of what she did, James says that God declared her righteous. An outsider of low moral character, no religious background, hadn't been to Sunday school, she becomes a friend of God. And more than that, of course, in the New Testament, Matthew shows us that she becomes an ancestor of the Lord Jesus, part of his family. 
Now why does God consider our service of other people, other Christians, to be so very important? Well, the reason is simple, I think. God is longing for men and women to know him and to become his friends, like Abraham became. But the problem is that God is invisible. And so God calls on us in all of our dealings with each other to make the invisible character of God visible to a watching world. Now that's why George Muller and Hudson Taylor and a handful of others who depend on God alone to meet their needs, those men are the exception rather than the rule. God wants the rest of us to meet one another's needs with all that he has provided so that others will see God in us and they're going to want to know what it is that makes us so different. Let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would bless this new series to us. We thank you that you worked through Martin Luther and others to recover the true gospel that had been so badly distorted by a corrupt church. Father, we pray that just as these great realities changed the world back then, we ask that you would change us today. Open our hearts and our minds to see that although we can never do enough to get right with you, to make ourselves attractive, that Jesus has already done everything that is necessary on our behalf. And through faith in him and by depending on him, we are already eternally and infinitely loved. So through this series, as you increase our faith, please grant that our faith might be proved in costly sacrifice and costly service of one another right here in this church. And all God's people said, Amen, Amen indeed.